The following podcast is brought to you by iSelect Fund. iSelect is dedicated to helping investors create a diversified portfolio of venture investments through their financial advisors. Learn how to start your own venture portfolio today by visiting iSelectFund.com. Welcome to iSelect's Deep Dive podcast series. I'm Hannah Hund, an analyst on the iSelect Ventures team, and I'm excited to walk you through today's presentation and findings. For those new to these podcasts, iSelect is an early-stage venture capital firm in St. Louis, Missouri, focused primarily on early-stage companies in healthcare and agriculture. At iSelect, we are privileged to live at the forefront of innovation, seeing emerging problems, solutions, and macro trends at their beginning before they make their way into popular culture. We use these deep dive presentations not only as a way for us to better engage with and understand new science and technology, but also to engage with the experts and entrepreneurs who are driving change and innovation in their respective fields. One topic that we have been researching is therapeutics role in chronic inflammation. In healthcare, it has been revealed that a major underlying cause for the top chronic diseases involves pathways in chronic inflammation. Therapeutics are valuable because they can play a large role in helping to prevent and cure inflammation before disease progression can occur. This could represent a huge decrease in the cost of our healthcare system and an improvement in the quality of patients' lives. However, getting to this future will require new approaches to targeting inflammation, pharmaceutical company buy-in, and biomarker tests for detecting and diagnosing chronic inflammation earlier. For this reason, and many others which we will cover in today's podcast, therapeutics' role in chronic inflammation is of increasing interest to iSelect. A note for today's program, we are not soliciting investment or giving investment advice in any way whatsoever. This presentation is general industry research based on publicly available information. This podcast was recorded with a live audience. In healthcare, it has been revealed that a major underlying cause for the top chronic conditions involves pathways in chronic inflammation. Therapeutics are valuable because they can play a large role in helping to prevent and cure inflammation before disease progression can occur. This could represent a huge decrease in the cost of our healthcare system and an improvement in the quality of patients' lives. However, getting to this future will require new approaches to targeting inflammation, pharmaceutical company buy-in, and biomarker tests for detecting and diagnosing chronic inflammation earlier. For this reason, and many others which we will be covering in today's webinar, therapeutics' role in chronic inflammation is of increasing interest to iSelect. A few process comments. We are not soliciting investment or giving investment advice in any way whatsoever. This presentation is general industry research based on publicly available information. We've invited you to this because you are technologists, thought leaders, entrepreneurs, industry experts, early adopter customers, or sophisticated investors that are part of the iSelect network. We value your thoughts, questions, comments, and insights into this topic and would greatly appreciate it if you actively engage during the presentation. Thank you in, in advance for your attendance and active participation. We ask that you put yourself on mute for the time being. However, we hope for this to be an engaging and interactive presentation. So if you have questions or comments, please feel free to unmute yourself to ask a question or provide commentary. This presentation is being recorded and will be available for replay. And with that, I'm pleased to bring you this week's deep dive on therapeutics role in chronic inflammation.
Great. So today we'll kind of do an introduction where I'll go over the executive summary, and then we'll talk about definitions and trends in chronic inflammation, introduce some of our innovators in the technology, um, and then really talk about our considerations going forward. Um, today we have two special guests joining us. We have Nicole Kimes, who's the founder and CEO of Sialta Therapeutics, and then we also have Matt Gonda, who is the president and CEO of Amatrix Therapeutics. Um, I'm not sure if Nick has had the chance to join the call yet, but Matt, um, if you'd like to do a, I'm going to go ahead and unmute you if you'd like to do maybe a 20-second introduction of yourself. Sure. <clears throat> I'm uh, Matt Gonda, the president, CEO, and founder of uh, Amatrix Therapeutics, which was founded uh, back in 2014. We've, we've been a stealth company while we uh, develop our, our anti-inflammatory programs and file a lot of patents, which we're just about ready to come out of that mode because everything's been issued. But uh, our work uh, gears around chimeric peptides that we've derived that can penetrate the cell and interrupt the process of uh, activation of a cell for uh, inflammatory responses. Perfect. Yeah, and we'll be, we'll be, Matt will be presenting more a little later and excited to hear what he has to say. Great. The largest driver of disease and disability has been found to be from the effects of chronic inflammation. Uh, for years, therapies have been aimed at treating the symptoms of chronic inflammation, but existing therapies do not act to prevent disease progression or directly treat the disease pathway without severely impacting the immune system. Um, there stands a large opportunity to develop preventative therapeutics that tackle chronic inflammation before it leads to disease progression and to treat diseases at their source. We will break down our analysis today by discussing startups that are tackling holistic approaches, which create solutions to treat and prevent chronic inflammation, as well as systemic approaches where companies are working to use specific pathways in an organ system to develop a curative treatment for chronic inflammation. And in today's deep dive, we'll really explore companies that are developing therapies to prevent and cure chronic inflammation. So what is Inflammation. Um, inflammation is a process where the immune system recognizes and removes harmful stimuli, whether that's from infection or injury, and begins the healing process. In a normal acute inflammatory response, we'll see an increased activity in the immune system when a threat is present, and that will resolve once the threat has passed. Um, when we see cases of chronic inflammation, there are factors such as social, psychological, environmental, or biological that prevent the resolution of that acute inflammation and kind of leave a systemic chronic inflammation. Um, and we see this in lots of different diseases ranging from cardiovascular um, to autoimmune to neurological and, and others. Chronic inflammatory diseases have been recognized as the most significant cause of death in the world today, with more than 50% of deaths being attributable to inflammation-related diseases such as heart disease, stroke, cancer, diabetes, chronic kidney disease, um, autoimmune, and neurodegenerative conditions. Kind of some examples of some of these kind of inflammatory conditions we see in heart disease that 
LDL cholesterol is inflammatory and often gets recognized by the immune system after it's oxidized, which can lead to heart disease. We've also seen several large observational studies in diabetes that have shown that people with high levels of C-reactive protein, which is a measurement of inflammation, are more likely to de develop insulin resistance. In addition, research dis researchers discovered that in people with type 2 diabetes, cytokine levels are elevated inside fat tissue, and excess body fat, especially in the abdomen, can cause continuous chronic low levels of abnormal inflammation that alters insulin's action and kind of contributes to diabetes. So overall, a lot of these chronic inflammation kind of underlies as a leading driver of the nation's $3.5 trillion in annual healthcare costs. Kind of what is literature saying? There was a, a recent paper published in journal in December of this last year, and it really describes the lifestyle factors that can lead to chronic inflammation. These factors include infections, inactivity, diet, environmental factors, industrial toxicants, and psychological stress. And as society continues, we're really not likely to see any decreases in the, the challenges and causes that are leading to chronic inflammation. Another interesting kind of takeaway from this paper was that it, they really described aging as a general inflammatory process that involves the whole body and provokes the diseases we associate with ages, with aging, such as Alzheimer's, atherosclerosis, and cancer. One of the serious results also obtained to date has been kind of this concept of immune aging, where researchers are basically able to better characterize the immune function of an individual and predict their cause of mortality much more accurately than by relying just on chronological age. So there's really enough evidence that the effects of chronic inflammation can be observed throughout life and really increase the risk of death. So we really need to put efforts on finding strategies for early diagnosis, prevention, and treatment of chronic inflammation. Existing solutions to tackle inflammation really are looking kind of to treat symptoms, or if they're going towards more direct pathways, they tend to adversely affect the immune system. So NSAIDs and steroids are one of the more commonly used anti-inflammatories, and they really work to suppress inflammation and treat the symptoms, but do not um, prevent the underlying inflammatory condition, which kind of causes patients to become reliant on them to manage symptoms. And they also don't have great side effects. NSAIDs have been found to kind of really affect the ga gastric mucosa, which kind of leads to ulcers. And then steroids kind of short-term can cause fluid retention, weight gain, and high blood pressure. And then long-term, we're seeing a lot of cataracts, high blood sugar, and osteoporosis. DMARDs are immunosuppressives that are designed to slow damage to tissues or organs by targeting the immune system. They generally interfere in combinations of critical pathways in the inflammatory cascade. Biologics are kind of a subset of the DMARDs, and they are usually engineered drugs designed to block cytokines, which are the proteins needed to cause an immune response. And currently the market for kind of world anti-inflammatory therapeutics is 
kind of been expected to reach 106 billion this year. Of that, biologics capture about three-fifths of the market. But in recent, very recently, a lot of the patents on the most common biologics have kind of run out. So they're starting to face some risk in biosimilars coming along and taking some of their market share. But in general, these kind of existing solutions really don't address some of the system-specific needs to have a preventative chronic uh, inflammation treatment. Next, we're going to kind of dive deep into some of the companies that are really approaching this. And there are kind of two ways that we kind of looked at the opportunities in chronic inflammatory therapeutics. We kind of looked at holistic treatments, which are treatments that kind of target inflammation before the progression of a disease. Um, and for that, we have examples of microbiome, which um, Nick will discuss, and then uh, also kind of peptide therapeutics are an, an interesting area, which we'll have Matt deep dive into. But then another way to kind of look at therapeutics is to look at some of the systemic pathways. So these would be people kind of working to target specific treatments to target disease-specific pathways. So we'll talk a little bit about um, some of the pulmonary fibrosis and Crohn's disease um, treatments that we're, we're seeing coming down the pipeline. And with that, Matt, if you would like to kind of walk us through some of the um, kind of where you are with Amatrix and kind of what's going on in, in your world now. All right. Um, I'd like uh, to thank you, Hannah, first for inviting me. The mission of Amatrix is to restore a patient's quality of life with effective therapies using the body's own natural control mechanism to reduce chronic inflammation and metabolic syndrome, which you so amply stated earlier that it's not just classical inflammation, but metabolites of, that occur in the body, such as lipids and carbohydrates, are also contributory to an inflammatory response in metabolic syndrome, which uh, our molecule, which I'll be describing, actually can interrupt that pathway as well as classical inflammation. But I will be speaking primarily about classical inflammation. So as you said, inflammation really is not a disease. It's a process whereby the innate immunity arm of the immune response rapidly, recklessly, and in overdrive responds to danger signals like injury, infecting microbes, and many environmental factors. It's an all-out war in which it's only function is to preserve life and repair uh, the damage. It is a take no prison assault, creating collateral damage that may smolder for long periods of time, and hence ending up in chronic inflammation. Uh, when you are young and it's of short duration, it's your friend, but as you age, it's your enemy to a healthy uh, life and pain-free life. And it affects every organ of the body, including the brain, which I don't think was, was mentioned today. It's been estimated that 80% of all diseases in the world are caused by or have an inflammatory component. So what's our solution to this? The company has exclusively licensed a small cell penetration peptide platform developed by Dr. Yasek Howager, a distinguished professor of medicine and a McGavick chair in the Department of Medicine at Vanderbilt. Uh, he has perfected and demonstrated efficacy in a multitude of animal models, both for metabolic syndrome and classic inflammation. 
over 25 years with 25 million in non-diluted grants. Our lead compound is called AMTX100, and that's what's up on the screen in frame one. And it is a chimeric peptide uh, joined together at a cysteine. And we've made a loop of the sequences that act as a decoy for classic inflammation. And the other side are, and that comes from NF-kappa-B, and it actually mimics a small flap found on important alpha. These important alphas are an adapter protein that works with important beta to transport large transcription factors from the cytoplasm to the nucleus. And this is an essential block or a gateway uh, so that the cell won't be inflammatory all the time. It, it basically controls itself. If the cell's not activated, there is a flap over imp alpha that looks very much like this decoy that we have on uh, AMTX100. And when AMTX100 is introduced, it actually can bind to that site on imp alpha, even though the flap is open and it looks like the flap. So it blocks transcription factors in a dilutive way. So we can modulate inflammatory responses by how much we give and how often we give it. And again, the other end is a cell penetrating portion, which can go into the membrane doesn't need energy, doesn't need a receptor, and doesn't need to end the cytotic pathway. It just drives right through the membrane. On that sequence, it's called uh, uh, the human uh, growth factor four domain. In those cell penetrating sequence, there are also sequences that act as a decoy for metabolic syndrome. So this molecule has three functions. One, to penetrate cells. One, to interfere with metabolic syndrome. That is the transport of transcription factors involved in metabolism to the nucleus to turn on DNA to make more. And uh, it has at the other end sequences that bind uh, the importance that are uh, uh, actively used in, in uh, classical inflammation. And you can see in, in the bottom uh, frame four, this shows the various transcription factors that we can interrupt and modulate such as NFAT, AP1, NF-kappa-B, STAT1, and eight others. And actually, if you look over in frame five, we don't totally interrupt it. We just modulate it. It's a dilutive effect. So first, you have a tractor, trailer, and a trailer. The tractor, which is important, that delivers a payload, which is the trailer to the nucleus. Then it goes back out and gets another one. But in many cases, it just picks up AMTX100 and dumps it off and it has no function other than to bind to that hitch, the uh, actual uh, hitch on the trailer, on the uh, truck, tractor. So what we do is it's sort of like a natural process the cell is doing all the time. It has a flap over important, which regulates the cell being, uh, the, the molecule being activated, but when it does get activated, the flap opens and transcription factors can bind and be transported through the nuclear pore and uh, into the nucleus and be able to interact with DNA to produce uh, inflammatory cytokines and chemokines. And when you see on the frame five, in the presence of our drug, they're just reduced. So this is exemplary of what we've, what we've done in this. With this molecule, we've already gone through all the preclinical IND studies and got FDA approval to proceed forward with a phase one slash 2B, an adaptive trial. Uh, which will start in about one month. Uh, we're right now enrolling uh, clinical sites that'll be carrying out the trial. And it's been proven in, in every animal model we put it into to be 
to be safe. We have not seen any signs of toxicity other than the needle injections, you know, where you get it. And that's, that's classical of where you have mechanical damage to cells in the body. We're also in the middle, you know, for this uh, fundraising. So I think with that, you know, I will stop. And uh, Hannah, I appreciate the time. If there's any questions, I'm happy to take them. Yeah, great. I, I actually have a question. Uh, what differentiates peptides from antibodies or recombinant proteins? Yeah, peptides are small molecules. They usually are uh, 50 to 100 amino acids in that range or smaller. And ours is 28 amino acids. And an antibody, you know, has a weight of 150 uh, uh, kilodaltons. So it's a big molecule. A peptide's a small thing. What's nice about them is they're very specific about what they interact with. And so if you can collect a sequence and you know what it does and you can attach it to something and get it inside the cell, it'll block that molecule from doing whatever it does in the cytoplasm or in the nucleus. So it's, it's a very small entity and they can be chemically synthesized. You don't have to biologically make them and uh, just put it on in chain elongation or fragment condensation. So, but they're very, uh, the body uses peptides all the time for all kinds of things. And usually their half-life is very, very short in their activity, whereas antibodies stick around for 30 days or longer. But this particular peptide, because it dives into cells immediately upon entrance into the uh, body, you don't see it extruded um, in the urine. And you don't find it in the plasma. It basically is in immune cells. So I have a question. How, do you, how does it get from the bloodstream out into the, into the cells? And how does it distinguish an a inflammatory cell from, from normal cells? It, it doesn't care whether it goes into an inflammatory cell or a normal cell. It goes into a normal cell, which is not activated to uh, be an inflammatory cell. It becomes fodder for making proteins. See, it's chewed up and, and used. If it goes into an immune cell, and, and as I think Hannah said, when you think of inflammation, you can't just think about the site that you're looking at. When you have that site, signals are sent out into the body, and the whole body is responding. It's sending things to that site. So the immune cells that we get into in blood basically get you quell the inflammatory response in those cells. And that's basically how the monoclonal antibodies work. I mean, they don't get to the skin when you're treating psoriasis or atopic dermatitis. They, they basically are quelling what they can do systemically in the body. But there's a, an, another area that they don't reach very well and why they can't get 100% clearance because that's in the skin. So our approach with this molecule is that we can actually put it into topical creams, pills, eye drops, nasal sprays, and injectables, and it's stable. So this is going to be a revolutionary approach to treating inflammation, where we can deliver actually high concentration locally to help quell the inflammatory response or do it systemically. So for the eye, age-related macular degeneration, you can use eye drops, you can use nasal sprays, you know, for anything in the sinus area or perhaps even the brain. You can use pills that dissolve in the small intestine for treating Crohn's and inflammatory bowel disease. And, and some of these have already been proven through the animal models. So uh, it, it's a very versatile molecule and very potent, doesn't take much. And, uh, you know, its half-life is 
hard to, hard to calculate once it's in the body. All you see is the effect. It's a reduction in inflammatory cytokines. But it's not the kind of immunosuppressive effect that you get with many of the other treatments. And what's your first indication? Atopic dermatitis. And the reason for that is that we have an open label phase one trial where we'll actually body surface area dose escalate because there's been no signs of toxicity in the animal studies. The FDA said, well, then let's see if we can induce it in humans. And we want you to cover 70% of the body with the drug. Just wipe it all over them and let it penetrate and see if there's any side effects to it. So it's a dose escalation, 6%, 12%, 24%, 48%, and 70%. So five cohorts. And if we see nothing at that, <laughs> then they're going to want us to say, well, what's the lowest dose that it takes to be effective, obviously? And so that's how we've designed our phase 2B. So these are, these are actually atopic dermatitis patients, by the way. So we're going to be able to see over seven days some effect of the peptide. It acts very fast. Perfect. Great. Well, if there are no more questions, um, Matt, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate hearing about your great work. All right. Thank you. Thank you. The next approach that we'll really kind of be highlighting is in the microbiome, and we have on the call Nick. Thank you, Anna, for the invitation, and sorry I joined slightly late. But I believe from the introduction that I heard that you very aptly covered the, the need for addressing a lot of these chronic inflammatory diseases from a new approach, because we're simply not doing very uh, a very good job from a traditional tract in our you know our attempt to really alleviate the symptoms downstream so the the background of Schulte very quickly is that we are an academic spin out uh, I co-founded the company three years ago with my mentor and an amazing microbiologist Susan Lynch who remains a professor of medicine at UCSF and really we founded the company to translate over a decade worth of work in uh, the microbiome and really understanding how the microbiome is playing a role in early life uh, in our health. And what Dr. Lynch has shown over the last decade is that specifically in allergic diseases. So these are uh, diseases that have an underlying immune response that is characterized by IgE antibody production. And so a systemic inflammation that underlies atopic dermatitis, food allergy, uh, allergic asthma, as well as rhinitis. And they occur sequentially throughout life in what's known as the atopic march. So this is, you typically see atopic dermatitis early in life around six months of age. Uh, you start seeing food allergy around one year of age, allergic asthma is diagnosed between three and five years of age, and then allergic rhinitis is usually more prevalent in older adolescents and adults. What Sue was involved in was some national uh, collaborations with very large cohorts of infants looking at what are the risk factors underlying allergic disease. And her 
focus was on the microbiome and what she was able to show was that even in the first months of life, the microbiome of the infants that go on to develop disease is quite distinct. And we see that throughout the first year of life. And it's not just the composition of the microbiome, uh, it is that the metabolic programming uh, of these communities is different. And that has different impacts on the immune system. So if you take the fecal matter from infants that go on to develop disease and put them in in vivo or ex vivo assays without the bacterial cells, just with the metabolic milieu, then you can stimulate the immune system to recapitulate what we see later in disease processes. So the point is that these allergic diseases are really starting long before we ever diagnose the disease. And so with that, the idea was, could we rationally design a microbial consortium that more, um, uh, that imitates what we see in the healthy kids and provide that to high-risk kids in a way of preventing disease from occurring. And so we've spent the, the last three years uh, really optimizing preclinical proof-of-concept studies, putting together a platform uh, where we can take those rational designed consortiums, move them into the lab to do preclinical studies, take our most promising candidates uh, and really develop the manufacturing, uh, which allows us to put them back into humans. And at this point we have our lead product, which uh, has been, we have a IND, the FDA has allowed us to go into humans for our first in human safety trial. And rather than doing a dosing escalation like you would typically do with uh, a small molecule or biologic, uh, when you have a self-replicating live drug, uh, dosing is a, a different question. And really the more important thing for us with the FDA was could we move this product into infants uh, in a, a, a efficient manner? And the FDA agreed for us to do a safety study that was actually age descending. So we started in adults, moved into adolescents, then into children down to the age of two. Uh, and in the, those studies, we did utilize allergic subjects. So these were subjects that were multi-sensitized and showed IgE responses to two or more allergens. And with that established both safety and tolerability at all three age groups, and the FDA has now agreed for a path forward into infants and neonates. Uh, so we are in the process of um, establishing planning our phase two studies, and we are looking at doing two different studies in parallel. One is a full primary prevention study where we will target high-risk neonates, and we'll do that through familial history, which is one of the uh, strongest indicators of disease development later in life at this point in time. We are working on companion diagnostics that could make the, the targeted population even more effective. Uh, but at this time, we'll start with familial history, and that will be a group where we treat over the first year of life, and we can look at 
a primary impulse at one year of life, which is a reduction in the incidence of atopic dermatitis and or uh, multi-sensitization. We will follow them out to two years, at which point we can look at atopic dermatitis, food allergy, and atopic wheeze uh, to see if we are reducing the incidence there. And the second trial in parallel is a more of a typical treatment paradigm where we're looking at secondary prevention. So this is in young children with atopic dermatitis, where we can look at the impact on atopic dermatitis itself as a primary outcome, but we can also follow the kids and see if we are reducing the incidence of food allergy and uh, allergic asthma or atopic wheeze later down the road as a secondary prevention of additional allergic diseases. And the idea is that if we can treat that atopic dermatitis early, that we will prevent sensitization, which is underlying the further development of food allergy or, and or asthma. So we are currently raising our Series B to uh, provide funding for both of those trials. And to date, we have pretty strong investors through Coastal Venture, Mark Benioff, and Seventure, which is a European fund uh, that is specific to microbiome interventions called Health for Life. And all three have agreed to go on to our Series B. And now we're looking for additional investors to round out the portfolio and allow us to do both of those studies in parallel. And with that, I will see if you have questions uh, about how we want to how we want to do that. Yes, I have a question. How um, are you kind of really differentiated from other microbiome solutions on the market? There, there are no drugs approved or microbiome-based drugs approved. Um, so if you're referring to probiotics that are out there, really the probiotics that are on the market were ones that were discovered early on. And to be quite honest, they were the ones that were easy to grow. Uh, some have shown a, a slight immune impact, uh, but really there's no concrete evidence that they are uh, effective in uh, treating or even preventing disease in the study so far. So really, we're looking at very specific organisms that are not part of your traditional uh, probiotics, but rather are very important in the early life development of the gut microbiome. And we think, with, if you think of this from an ecological perspective, uh, the, the first species in a niche, in a naive niche, are really important in establishing the environment and dictating the subsequent diversity associated with that niche. And so what we think is happening in allergic disease is that those early species are being disrupted, whether it's um, many environmental impacts that are having something to do with this. It can be the mother's micro microbiome, the background. It could be the mode of birth. It can be early introduction of um, antibiotics and drugs. Um, there's a lot formula feeding is one, cesarean section, all of those are impacting that early life microbiome. And so we want to reintroduce microbes 
that have been shown in clinical samples from infants to be important in distinguishing those healthy children from the kids that go on to develop disease. So ours is really born out of clinical data over the first year of life in the microbiome. And it's important to note that we're using a consortium. It is not a single uh, microbe. And we think that's really important in the way that they cross-feed and support one another to help establish themselves in the niche. And it's really, you know, again, it's not about just what's the name of the microbe. It is about their functional capacity. And so we really designed a consortium that has broad functionality that is associated with inducing immune tolerance early in life. So I, I would say the fact that we're using a synergistic consortium that is specific to the gastrointestinal niche early in life uh, and that we're going at it from an early introduction piece are all quite distinctive. Great, thank you, Nick. Um, and a kind of a note to everyone, if you'd like to ask a question, you'll, you'll have to go ahead and unmute yourself. So I have one. How does, how does your approach uh, compare with commits, I believe, the pure tech spin out from Bob Langer's lab. Uh, I think they're doing about the same thing, is that, if I'm not, not mistaken. They were doing it, they no longer exist. So they, they had worked with Maria Gloria Bello as well uh, with vaginal seeding. So they had both the consortium and the vaginal seeding and they focused on the vaginal seeding and to my knowledge, um, they are no longer a functioning company. And in fact, their IP is available and we're working with the University of British Columbia on potentially uh, securing that IP that's out of Brett Finley's work. Um, so you're right, they would have been a, a, a similar approach uh, that's no longer happening. The, what I will say is that not only Brett Finley's work, but also Hans Biscard's work out of um, Copenhagen provide additional evidence from independent labs in international cohorts that what we're seeing is consistent. And for us, that's actually quite reassuring that we are on the right track. Um, so I think they've done some great work and have helped contribute to this potential approach. As far as the specific organisms, there is some overlap, but it is, it's not the exact overlap. Uh, the idea is to, we could secure that IP as well to um, broaden additional products in the future. So that's one of the pieces I didn't get into right now, but the way we've developed our platform is really to make it iterative in that you know, clearly with a single uh, consortium, we will impact a certain portion of the population. We think it will be a significant portion of the population, but there's gonna be subsets of the population that don't respond to the exact same organisms or functionality. Uh, and so we'll take the non-responders and put them back through the pipeline and come up with additional products that could be targeted to those individuals that don't respond. Uh, to the initial product. And so uh, we could certainly use 
that that IP to to help expand where how we can develop those new consortia. So how did you pick the consortium? Did, did you heat map a, a lot of patients to, to come up with the right ratios? Yeah, it's really about the, the organisms and functionality. So we worked with two different cohorts. Um, originally, Sue worked with Henry Ford Hospital and they have a cohort, the wheels cohort of infants. And so over, um, they have over 400 infants in cross-sectional studies. And so that's where they looked at one month of life and could see that there was a depletion of specific commensals uh, and in fact, metabolic depletions that were very significant within lipid synthesis, um, as well as uh, some peptide degradation as well. And so from that, started having ideas about what organisms may be influential in that early life setting. And then we were able to use a second cohort that was more specific to the Bay Area. This was work with Michael Cabana, who's the who was formerly the chief of pediatrics at UCSF. And he was doing a, a study with a lactobacillus intervention in high-risk infants. And so we were able to actually look at the microbiome of high-risk infants over the first year of life. So we had samples from, the, the, from birth, one month, three months, six months, nine months, and 12 months. And it was the organisms that we were seeing consistently lacking in the high-risk kids over that first year. And also, we started looking at uh, functional networks of uh, when you were seeing an impact with lactobacillus and you were seeing uh, increased functionality, what were the, the synergistic organisms that were all working together at that time and having those metabolic impacts? together. So it, it was based on two different cohorts of kids, longitudinal data out of one of them, um, and seeing consistencies in the, uh, the organisms themselves and the functionality that was being recapitulated. And then again, as I mentioned, some of the work from the international cohorts were also uh, supportive of the organisms and uh, metabolic restructuring that we are looking for. I have a question. This is Robert Gish. Thank you for this nice presentation. Uh, two questions. One is, how are you proving you're repopulating the intestinal tract, other locations? Uh, acid uh, has been shown to destroy most, if not all, of microorganisms, bacterial organisms that move through the stomach on the way to the intestinal tract. So is it a repopulation that takes place or just changes in antigen presentation? And also what about stability in your preparation, shelf stability? It's another place where these uh, organisms degrade or um, yeah. become inactive. Those are all great questions. And if we have an hour, I'll, I'll go through all of them with you. Very briefly, as far as uh, these are provided orally, one of the things, do we need engraftment or do we not need engraftment? So from our preclinical studies, we know that we need live cells. Heat kill cells don't work. It's not just cell surface proteins that are stimulating the immune system. There is something metabolically active that is required for efficacy. 
Um, so we do think we need live cells. Now, whether we need them to engraft or not is a different question. And it's a question we simply don't know the answer to at this moment in time. Um, and, and we can look at engraftment in the mouse models, but humans, you know, when we use mouse strains in the mouse model and you see engraftment, the, the question is, well, we really need human strains because we're going into human. Then when we use human strains in mouse models, does engraftment, you know, it, is that comparable? We simply don't know. So we think we need to figure that out in humans. Uh, it's one of the reasons why we moved quickly into human studies for these purposes, since we have a relatively safe product and the FDA was supportive of that idea. Um, we can, we are providing this as a daily oral supplementation for the first year of life. And we believe that during that time we're, we're impacting immune tolerance and you're really programming future Im immune responses. We're being so, very conservative by giving that daily supplementation. And that way we're ensuring that even if there's not engraftment, there is exposure to live cells throughout that time period. We will have a better uh, understanding in the, the studies afterwards of whether we're actually seeing engraftment. I can say in the first in human uh, safety study, we did a four week uh, washout period and we did see partial engraftment of certain organisms. So, you know, it's, it is not uniform. It is a consortium and some engraft more than others. Um, and part of that is based on the background uh, of what is there at the time. So it's an ongoing question of whether, number one, do we need engraftment? And number two, are we getting it? And I like to caveat that because the way we're looking at this, we, we cannot go in and take biopsies of people the way that we can with animals. So we cannot really look at the intestinal, intestinal mucosa in these studies, if you you know if you're doing something else where you had to um, take a biopsy for other purposes, you can look at that. But for us, we're really looking at what we see in the fecal material, and so that is our best estimation of engraftment at this point. Is once you stop providing the supplementation, do you continue to see higher levels of that specific strain? in the fecal material. And then as far as stability, in the initial studies, we do not have it in a pill form because we do wanna give it to infants. So it's not protected through the stomach. Um, and yet we are seeing increased levels of the organisms. Um, and we can show even partial engraftment of some of the organisms. So, and then in the infants, you have a different gastrointestinal and stomach tract. And in fact, the pH does not go nearly as low as an adult gastrointestinal system. So we think it would be even less of an issue in the infants. And we've done studies to show that uh, within the pH range of the, the infant stomach, that these organisms are actually quite hardy. Um, and again, these are naturally occurring gastrointestinal organisms that were able to establish their niche going through the gastrointestinal system. It's, that's how they initially established themselves. And I feel like there was one, oh, stability. Uh, we are doing all stability studies to ensure 
It, that's one of the things going through the FDA as a drug, we have ex much more um, high standards of how these are manufactured and produced. And we have to provide all of that information to the FDA uh, in the same way. So we have been going through uh, GMP uh, manufacturing with stability parameters in all of the different really formulations that we were considering. Uh, and it, this is at this point, it's a cold chain is where we have stability. But in our initial product, we now have up to a year, um, we're, we're actually past a year of stability in cold chain. Perfect. Well, Nick, thank you so much for joining and, and sharing all of your progress so far. Congratulations on um, really great work. Thank you. I've got a, actually, I had a question. Um, this is Carter Williams. So I'm getting a sense that the, the models, I'm not sure if I heard this right. So if we're dealing with human systems and things like bacteria, you really have to be in a human system to see the proper response. Is that accurate? That is our opinion. There are certain models and we have done animal models to show that we have efficacy um, in those animal models. Do I get the they're quite lacking. Go ahead, sorry. So we just think they're quite lacking. Um, so we think it's important to prove this in humans. And so where are we in advancing in silica models or other, other kinds of models that may be more predictive? I mean, we roll forward 15, 20 years, we're going to be in silica more than we will be in animal models, I think. Is there any any work being done in that area or am I just completely off the wall? <laughs> no, I think there's work being done in those areas. I still don't, um, I haven't seen anything that makes me believe that they're optimal over actual um, humans, uh, simply because you can't recreate that whole system. But certainly people are doing things uh, with sort of 3D modeling of gastrointestinal epithelium uh, layered with immune cells sort of organoids, um, I, I would say that's some of the in silico work that I think is at least more conducive to yeah. the complex interactions that we're talking about. Um, you will hear everybody talk about germ-free mice and humanizing germ-free mice. Uh, I'm not convinced of it. There was just a paper published, oh, last week, and it was like 98% of studies done in germ-free mice show that the microbiota impacts the disease of interest. And we think that there's just, it is one way to try and look at the system. But again, when you put the human microbiome in a germ-free mouse, it, you're not recapitulating the human microbiome. You're recapitulating a new microbial environment uh, that's quite distinct from anything we actually know. So yeah. I, I don't, and, and in the germ-free mice, their immune system by the nature of being germ-free is quite different as well. So again, all of these are tools. I'm not, I, I'm not saying that you don't ever use them. We should all be using different tools at different times to tell us certain things. But I, I, I do believe that there's uh, questions that we can't answer in those models and engraftment is one of those questions. 
you'll see certainly within inflammation, there's a lot of in vitro or ex vivo work being done where you're, you take human cells um, yeah. and provide metabolic inputs either from the organisms themselves or people treated with the organisms to give an indication of what kind of immune response or what kind of um, epithelial response you're getting. And again, those are informative um, in certain ways and I think need to be integrated into programs and we certainly use those in our preclinical optimization periods. Uh, but are you seeing the FDA, is the FDA sort of rethinking this every time or are they got a baseline architecture for approval? Uh, I, I believe the FDA agrees with us and they just want to see data in humans. Yeah, cool. I, 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 we have dealt with the FDA extensively in this realm, and I can say it's actually been quite a pleasure. They are um, supportive. I, they're, you know, really at the base of it, safety is what they're about, and they believe that we can do these products in a safe manner, um, even though they are immune modulatory. They're showing to be quite low risk. So they're, they're supportive of them and they also really like the idea around prevention in early disease and they're moving away from the idea that you have to treat adults and then move into children and they're really learning and acknowledging that children are a different ecosystem. Um, and so they've been much more supportive of that as well. As far as the overall microbiome and a route to regulatory approval, I mean, nobody has not gained approval. It's simply an early field where we're just now getting to the point where people are in phase three trials that may be able to get approval. Um, and from what I can tell, the indications are that that pathway is very clear forward. Okay, thank you. Yep. Great. Thank you so much, Nick, for joining us. Thank you very much. Great. Um, and now we're going to talk a little bit about a few other approaches to kind of curing diseases related to chronic inflammation. I just want to touch on a, on a few interesting companies. Um, first, we kind of see Kither Biotech. They're really working on kind of a platform play to treat um, fibro fibrotic lung disease. And currently, they're really focusing on preventing inflammatory response in pulmonary idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and cystic fibrosis. They're right just now completing preclinical trials, but they're, they're an interesting company to really kind of keep a lookout for. Um, the next kind of really interesting one that I, that I found was Kyverna Therapeutics. They're actually targeting um, autoimmune diseases, and a, a lot of the kind of treatments currently for autoimmune disease involve kind of overall weakening the immune response, which leaves people pretty disposed to infection and, and other kind of morbidities that go along with that. Um, so they're kind of really working to create T-cell mediated therapies that help target auto-reacting cells without, um, you know, affecting the rest of the immune system. They just raised uh, a $25 million Series A 
and started a strategic partnership with, with Gilead Sciences. Um, so they're one to really keep an, a, a lookout on. And then a third interesting company uh, that I kind of found was Thetis Pharma Pharmaceuticals. They have a major GI play, but what I think is really interesting about their take is that, you know, we kind of talked in the beginning about how there were kind of two parts of the response in acute inflammation, where it's like you have the response where you ha create the inflammation and then there's resolution of it. They're really working to create resolving lipids that, that kind of tackle that second part, so resolving inflammation. So they really help, they're, they're kind of aiming to really help GI inflammatory conditions um, kind of cure themselves and heal themselves. And so, so they just raised a, a 800,000 seed and have a total of 13 million in funding, including grants. And they're completing their IND enabling research studies. And I, I'm really excited to see kind of, kind of the results that are coming out of that. Next, kind of some of the recent recent acquisitions that we're kind of seeing in the scene. I think a lot of this is driven by pharmaceutical companies since their biologics have patents have kind of come up in recent years. They're really looking to fill their pipeline with therapies that really address inflammation. And also I think in some ways they're looking for additional biologics that have fewer side effects to really help increase the availability of therapeutics for chronic inflammation. So now we're gonna kind of briefly go over kind of our thoughts moving forward. Finding therapeutics that treat chronic inflammation before disease progress is kind of a major key in this market. There's just a strong evidence that, that this is really kind of the path to, to preventing uh, a lot of the costs in our healthcare system. A lot of the current treatments, again, do not treat or cure uh, many of these kind of chronic inflammatory conditions. So there's a lot of space there to really come in with therapies that, that cure diseases and help them to resolve. Um, additionally, biologics are kind of facing a lot of kind of scrutiny. Humira, which is one of the most popular biologics, actually received a black box warning from the FDA because they've kind of found that they're, they're with a lot of indications of, I guess, sepsis, infection, and, and increased occurrences of some cancers. So even biologics aren't, aren't doing a, a, a perfect job of treating advanced diseases. And so there's a lot of space there to come in with a therapeutic that, that is able to treat the underlying inflammation without affecting the, the overall immune response. I think moving forward, some of the risks and, and kind of questions, and I, I think we kind of heard this when we were talking to Matt and Nick, is how do we kind of really determine the difference in our therapies between whether they're actually anti-inflammatory or immunosuppressive? So being able to really kind of prove that uh, will be, I think, maybe a challenge and, and call to action for a lot of therapeutics companies moving forward. And then additionally, if we're, we're looking at treating um, chronic inflammation early, we really need, um, actually from a, from a biomarkers perspective, we need kind of expanded knowledge of these biomarkers related to inflammation so that we can really diagnose chronic inflammation early uh, to get people moved in on the pipeline of these drugs. And with that, 
you know, we have, we've discussed these potential companies con to consider. I'm really excited to see um, where this goes. And with that, I wanna say thank you all for joining. <laughs>